1: Welcome to Overnight America with Ryan Recker,
0: sponsored by Michael's Flooring, the flooring experts, michaelsflooringoutlet.com. On the voice of St. Louis, KMOX.
2: And welcome to Overnight America. You know, I've been doing that for four years and it's very difficult to find new ways to open the show. Honestly, it's it's difficult. You just have to go with the flow, see what it feels like. I'd like to see artificial intelligence try to do that for four straight years. How about that? Yeah, we're coming up on the four-year anniversary of the show. Can you believe that? A lot to get to, and our friend Rich Rubino this hour from American Politics on the Rocks and dot geekcom one of the big news stories that was trending on Twitter was Eric Greitens announcing and making it official that he's going to run for that Senate seat. So we're going to talk a little bit about that, and I was curious from Rich's perspective, if you were to ultimately have a dream of getting into the White House, is it easier to do it from sitting in the governor's mansion or a sitting Senate seat? I'm just kind of curious what he thinks about that. Because you think about power, federally speaking, a Senate seat. Oh, you're a senator. Oh, so good. So nice. So strong. You're a senator. And then the governors don't get that much love. But is it actually a better spot to be from, the governor's seat? I'll, I'll get Rich's thoughts on that. And next hour, 2 we're going to talk to a baseball journalist. His name is Tim Wendell. And he wrote a book called Escape from Castro's Cuba. Interesting look there. A lot to talk about sports in Cuba. Uh, isolated, but kind of, but not really. And Brad Young, a uh, friend of the show, which you heard last week, Harris, Dahl, Fisher & Young, on the Kim Gardner news coming out just a couple of days ago. I wanted to ask him and try to explain some of those motions that are going down in court. Now, you may actually be listening to us on the FM dial right now. 98.7, if you're within St. Louis City and County, kind of in that general area. You probably can get it in your car if you're driving around and you're listening on 1120 a.m. right now. If you're outside of that area and you're just used to listening to us on the Radio.com app or just 1120 a.m. or anything like that, then sure, keep listening that way. But the 98.7 on the inside area, the downtown region, the business district of uh, St. Louis, that's where you could find that. And maybe you could uh, set your radio dial if you normally drive within those boundaries. That seemed to work out pretty well. Just gives you another option to listen to the radio station. And then tomorrow night, we have the mayoral debates, the very first one. And you're going to hear it right here on KMOX, 6 o'clock, no commercials. I don't know exactly what's going to be going down, but it seems like there's some anticipation for it because there is some news and chatter on Twitter just talking about some news of something Kara Spencer said here on KMOX just recently, a few hours ago, people online talking about it. Um, you know, I'll have to push some of that out later on social media. But if you were not aware, so in partnership with Fox 2, this primetime debate, which will be on Fox 2 and the radio version of it, The coverage here on KMOX starting at six o'clock. Pretty exciting. The debate between uh, Deshara Jones and Kara Spencer. I think that tomorrow will be interesting. What's the number one issue, the number one things that are going on in the city that everyone wants to talk about? It's crime. How are you going to tackle crime? And how are you going to do it differently than all of the uh, previous mayors? who seem to have failed. Can can we look at this and say, has there been one mayor in St. Louis who has succeeded when it comes to tackling the crime issue? It's a problem that has constantly plagued the city in the region. It's been there for a long time coming this past year. Terrible, terrible of what a 50 year high when it comes to homicides and other violent crimes, not looking all that good to begin with. The prosecution rate is low. We have a terrible job of getting people off the street, even after they're caught by police. And that has a whole different issue when it comes to the circuit attorney's office. We got all kinds of other issues that goes on in the city. But the number one thing that could turn a lot of our problems around is trying to get a handle on this violent crime. So what are the two candidates going to do? What are they going to talk about tomorrow? Could we find out? Maybe. Please. probably uh, well, so what's the question is it just going to go further more progressive and spiral even more out of control are we going to find that someone's going to take a more conservative approach a pro-police approach probably not I mean, what are we going to see all the areas that have figured out how to battle their crime we're going in the opposite direction. We're going to say, we're going to try the opposite of that and see what happens. And I think we have a pretty good indication based on the last couple of years because things aren't going that well. And when you have a somewhat middle of the road, even though someone that runs as a Democrat in line of Krusen, she at least didn't get into that, you know, gang mentality, the um, mob mentality, I should say, of just jumping on. Oh, the police are terrible and we got to reform this. We got to do that. And, da, da, da. you know, sometimes people get so progressive for their own good. I'm glad she didn't really jump into that mob, but I'm thinking, okay, we're going to have two other candidates in there. Are they just going? To, are they just going to be a part of it? Are they going to fight back? Are they going to at least show some support? There's so many issues that are on the table. Tomorrow night's going to be a big first debate here in the city of St. Louis. I think a lot of people are wondering exactly what their plans are going to be. What they don't want to hear is, "What I'm mayor." Blah, 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 which means nothing. They want to know really what's going to happen. What's the problem? What do you see as the problem? How do you fix the problem? What uh, are you going to do differently? What have we tried that has failed? You tell me. And if they don't have the answer to that, then is it a disqualifier from the beginning? I think a lot of people want to know. So tomorrow night's the night. And welcome again to Dave Glover on DecayMOX. That's pretty exciting to see him hop in and do the show starting at 2 o'clock. I caught most of his interview with Bob Costas who has a birthday today. Happy birthday, Bob Costas. Woo! Later in the show, I wanted to play one of my favorite clips of Bob Costas on KMOX. And since I've been going through the archives and have been creating these documentaries, I have accumulated a lot of different moments and memories of KMOX's history, and i have save them, and I wait to have an opportunity to play them. I've actually played this one before, but it's one of my very favorite clips from the archives of Bob Costas, which we're going to do later to celebrate his birthday today. So a big show planned for you. If you want to text in, you can. 314-436-7900. I'm on Facebook. Ryan Wrecker Radio is where you find me on there. This is Overnight America KMOX.
1: Use both your KMOX presets when you're in the car. 98.7 FM near the city at 1120 AM further out. Two buttons for KMOX, the voice of St. Louis.
2: American Politics on the Rocks. That's the name of his book. He's a guest of ours on Mondays here on Overnight America. Rich Rabino, how are you? I'm doing well, Ryan. politi Today is KMOX notable alumni Bob Costas' birthday. He oh, yes, turns 69 yes. years old. Also uh, having a birthday today is William Shatner turning 90 years old. I'm curious, are you a Star Trek fan?
3: Uh, no, I think I might have been in my youth, but I haven't been following it uh, recently.
2: Not so much. I should ask Brad Young about that. He's a big Star Trek fan. He's another guest on this program, and he he mostly does uh, law talk for us. But we missed that opportunity. I was curious if you saw the news about former Missouri Governor Eric Greitens. He went on Fox today and mentioned that he is going to run for that Senate yeah. seat that will be open for Roy Blunt's seat, uh, who said he's not going to seek reelection. And it made me wonder. When it comes to ambitions of the White House, is it better to or do you think it gives you better leverage or maybe a better ability to make it to the White House if you are coming from a senator's seat or from the governor's mansion?
3: Oh, absolutely. From a governor's mansion. No question about it. Um, oh. if, you, if, oh, if you look at our, if you look at our history, first of all, there's only actually been. Warren G. Harding in 1921, Barack Obama, or John F. Kennedy in 1961, and Barack Obama in 2009 were the only people to go directly from the United States Senate to the presidency. And they all have something very much in common. In the case of Harding and John F. Kennedy, um, they are more or less national figures, and they actually use their seat more so for that. They weren't necessarily. Well, in the case of Harding, you know, he was spending an enormous amount of time campaigning for other Republicans around the country. In 1916, he actually delivered the keynote address at the Republican National Convention, which nominated um, which nominated Charles Evans Hughes for president. And in that, he actually, ter- he actually coined the term "Founding Fathers," and that's where that came from. Huh. In John F. Kennedy's case, uh, he was in the Foreign Relations Committee, and he also spent a lot of time out of state. Um, he actually he actually had Addison's disease, and there was a time when he was in the hospital. And the other senator from Massachusetts, Lever Stoltenstein, would essentially try to get his name on. He was a Republican. He would get uh, Kennedy's name on pieces of legislation, even though Kennedy didn't have much to do with it. And Barack Obama, of course, you know, two years into his Senate term, he was running for president. What that mean, what that shows to me, in terms of all three of those, um, all three of those humans, is, <laughs> is that um, the people that stay in the Senate for a long period of time and then run for the presidency, usually it's not necessarily, it's not, it usually it does not necessarily work out positively for them. The ones who can kind of somewhat say they're still an outsider in Barack Obama's case because he have been there for such a short period of time. The story is that, you know, he met with Dick Durbin um, when were, he was thinking about running for president. And he said, you know, was crazy. Dick Durbin was the Senate, minor, Senate Minority Whip, chairman of current chairman of the Judiciary Committee. And Durbin said, you know, essentially, you know, you can be there for 30 years, but it's not necessarily going to help you. Um, in terms of becoming president, to have more of a record, have something that people can chew through, um, so that, people, you know, other, so that um, opponents can look through legislation and see, you know, that you pass, you signed this legislation, you voted for this many tax increases, um, you voted for this many, you know, um, pork barrel projects, you're part of the Washington culture, you're part of the Washington cartel. It's better as soon as you get there to start running for something else, which is why we saw in the last election, we saw Ted Cruz, as soon as Ted Cruz got elected to the United States Senate in 2012, by 2015, he's running for president. Same thing with uh, Marco Rubio. Marco Rubio gets elected to the United States Senate in 2010. He runs for president four years later, um, even in history. Bob Kerry in 1992 was in the United States Senate first-term senator. He was only there for four years. Al Gore, when he ran in 88, was, only a, was a first-term senator as well. So they know that once you've been there for a long period of time, it only has deleterious effects. Now, for governors... This is really a benefit for one thing because you can always say that you're part of being outside the system. You look at the last few presidents, you've had certainly Ronald Reagan, Jimmy Carter, George W. Bush, George, George W. Bush, Bill Clinton all coming from Governor's mansions in history. You have folks like you know certainly uh, certainly uh, Woodrow Wilson, um, who certainly came, came from Franklin Roosevelt, who' been a governor of New York. Um, Calvin Coolidge ascended to the vice presidency after becoming Governor of Massachusetts. So I think it's definitely more of a gangway. Uh, to the presidency. And the other thing is, you can get a lot of national attention. If there's um, a hurricane, if there's a monsoon, if there's some sort of a national tragedy, you know, the governor's there, and people immediately look to the governor for leadership, whereas the United States Senator is one of 100 members. And it's very hard sometimes for senators, especially some of the younger senators, unless you're in leadership, to garner a lot of attention. And once you do get into the leadership, this is a catch-22, once you do get into the leadership and people automatically see you and have that kind of scarlet W as being part of, part, part of Washington, you know, that's why certainly someone like um, you know, someone like Mitch McConnell or, for that matter, Chuck Schumer, I don't think would fare as major presidential candidates. And those that have been there for a long period of time, like Joe Biden and Chris Dodd, when they ran back in 2008 were essentially um were essentially asterisks whereas candidates like John Edwards and Barack Obama both first term senators and Hillary Clinton the second term senator were the top 3 uh were the top 3 contestants.
2: You know I do a pretty good Mitch McConnell impersonation would you like oh, to hear it? Yes, I would. All right, let me give it a try. It goes, "I would uh, urge my <laughs> colleagues uh, across the aisle to read <laughs> Rich Rubino's book, uh, American Politics <laughs> on the Rocks." it is uh bipartisan okay that's probably not the best i've done
3: That is is very good. I know that a lot of the young people absolutely um, adore him because he's so charismatic. He's kind of like a rock star.
2: (laughs) 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 Yes, they love Bernie. I could do an okay Bernie, too. I mean, those are easily impersonated type of uh, politicians. But, you know, it makes me wonder because you think about the governor's seat and you think about senators and you would normally think, wow, a senator has so much power. And when it comes to their votes and the amount of yielding power they have when it comes to what they can cast, it seems so so much more than being able to run a state government budget. And that seems to be a lot of what a governor can do and and align things that go on inside the state. But it's so fascinating to see when you're talking about some of these high profile governors that they always get what seems like better consideration when they're running up in their party. Um, Is there a Republican or Democrat edge for something like that? Are Republican governors more likely to get a nomination than Democrat governors?
3: No, I think it's pretty much equal. It's just the idea of being somebody that's outside of Washington. And Bill Clinton used to talk about the brain dead politics of both parties, and he was able to do that when he ran for president in 1992. Whereas if someone got the nomination, like Tom Harkin, for example, a longtime senator from Iowa, and he made that statement, people would say, "Well, you've been in Washington, so you're kind of part of the problem." Clinton was able to kind of inoculate um, to inoculate himself from that. But the interesting thing about it, so a senator, if a senator, if an incumbent senator runs for president. Part of the reason is it's relatively easy because you can spend two years, you know, not being united, spending very little time actually in the United States Senate. You can spend an enormous amount of time campaigning for a president, and you're barely, you're barely, you're very barely missed. You can come for essentially when there are tie-breaking votes, which is very rare. Um, In actual votes, you know, you don't necessarily have to show up in committee meetings. There are senators that don't show up for committee meetings anyways. So you can essentially have a staff member go and then essentially brief you. So you can really be on the campaign trail. If you're a governor and you're spending your time running for president, it really becomes an issue. Now, in some cases, you can essentially um, delegate the power to your lieutenant governor. For example, go back to 1991, 1992, when Bill Clinton was running. Under Arkansas law, when the governor is out of state, the lieutenant governor becomes governor. So in Bill Clinton's case, essentially, he spent, he spent the entire year of 1992, except when he was back in the state, which is very rare, and Arkansas Lieutenant Governor Jim Guy Tucker essentially became the acting governor um, during that time period, but he was also thinking about running for president in 1987, and one of the things he said was that he said he, he thought about the idea and he basically came up with the conclusion that it's too hard to run from out of, to run, become governor from out of state. And he said, look at Mario Cuomo from New York. He said, look at Jim Thompson from um, Illinois. He said the reason those two are not running is because they have a state to they have a state to run, and essentially you're spending all your time, you know, running for president. It's very hard to kind of do that from far away. But what Clinton did, he actually met with Tucker, and Tucker, interesting because they were rivals, they run against each other in 1982 for governor. And then in 1990, Tucker was considering running for governor himself, thinking Clinton would not run. Then Clinton decides he's going to run for governor for re-election, shocks a lot of people. Tucker exits that race, runs for lieutenant governor. And even though they've been rivals, they kind of had a reproach ma, and they had a meeting. And essentially Clinton said, you know, to, said, to, said to Tucker, essentially he's going to give him a lot of kind of plenary authority because he's going to be out of state. But there was one instance during that time period when Ricky Ray Rector, Ricky Ray Rector was about to be executed, mm-hmm. and a couple of days before the New Hampshire primary, Clinton, Bill Clinton went back to Arkansas to preside over that execution. So there, are, there have been certainly some issues. Um, you know, When Mike Dukakis ran back in 1988, though, it actually really ended up hurting him because Dukakis had to go back to the state because he was spending he, – when he ran for – when he was running for president, he talked about the quote-unquote Massachusetts miracle, the economy was, so, was doing so well in Massachusetts, but then it started to have a downfall in 1988, right around the time he's running for president, so the Republicans in part started to say, you need to come here to work with the budget, so the caucus had to spend an enormous amount of time back in Massachusetts, and in many respects he had a little, bit, little trust in his lieutenant governor at the time, Evelyn Murphy, so that landed up actually having a deleterious effect. Uh, on Mike Dukakis. But generally speaking, I think the best thing is to be a former governor. That way, if anything bad happens in your state, you can blame it on your successor.
2: <laughs> <laughs> nice strategy tip from Rich Rabino there. And yes. I didn't yes. realize that. So lieutenant governor would have the power of in authority when the governor of Arkansas is out of the state. Are most states set up like that? Or was that unique to Arkansas?
3: Um, Yeah, it's actually – no, a lot of – most states are actually set up like that, but some states – in some states, it's actually – it's not so much lieutenant governor. Some states don't even have lieutenant governors, so it might be the secretary of state. It might be the Senate president. But what was interesting in terms of Clinton was – so in 1987, both Bill Clinton and Winston Bryan – Winston Bryan was – Clinton was the first lieutenant governor before Jim Guy Tucker – were both out of state – And there was the so then it goes down to essentially the the president of the Senate becomes the acting governor at that particular period of time. So usually when that happens, the state senator, the Senate president, or for that matter, lieutenant governor, does very little. It's only going to be a day or two. But he started, you know, essentially he started. um, He actually fired. um, He fired Betsy Wright, who was Clinton's chief of staff, who he had a rivalry with. Kind of to show that he was to show who he was in charge in many respects. They ended up giving all these proclamations and giving them to his friends. And of course, and he, and of course, when Clinton came back the next day, he rehired um, Betsy Wright. But he laid, he always called him um, that son of a bitch, even when he was president. This um, some one state senator, so very interesting.
2: I would say that's uh, wait, who said that? Bill Clinton. Okay, well, I think about when I think of Bill Clinton and all of the, the in the nineties, I never really think back too much about the state politics and the way they work out. But it's really amazing just how much power there is to the state and the way that you're lining it up here. And I I wonder, too, about how um, that's going to play out in the next presidential election, because the big wild card for the Republicans, of course, is Donald Trump, if he decides to run again, because then, you know, I don't even know if it matters. Do you still see Donald Trump as the leader of the Republican Party?
3: Yes, absolutely. Um, I mean you see this just this past you know, this past week folks like um Mo Brooks from Alabama, one of the people who was at the uh, rally back on January sixth and essentially said that it was time to go it was time to it was time to protest. A lot of people on the Democratic side want, you know were talking about potentially having expelled. But he's now he he's likely to announce now that he's going to run for United States Senate seat, the open Senate seat Richard Shelby is aggressing. And part of the re he has um Stephen Miller, by the way, who was Trump's advisor on issues like immigration? There to speak for him, it'd be very hard for a Republican to run in 20 in 2022 outside of perhaps the Northeast, who would not have to stay in a Republican primary that they are somehow a supporter. Uh, Donald Trump, if they do not say that, it's going to be very hard, which is very, why the reason why someone like Lynn Cheney, for example, has a primary challenge because she voted to impeach uh, Donald Trump. And that's the reason why, you know, all 10 of those, including folks like, you know, Jody Heiss in uh, South Carolina, uh, I think all, all, um, all, all 10 of those who voted for the impeachment are likely to have a very um, formidable challenge in 2022 in their primaries.
2: Plita geekcom You can find his work on there, some articles and audio and video and everything, really, and Rich Rubino's book, American Politics on the Rocks, you can find online. If you want to search for Rich on social media, by the way, how can they find you there?
3: Uh, Just go to Twitter and type in Rich Rubino, P-O-L, or just go to Facebook and type in Rich, R-I-C-H, and the last name is Rubino, R-U-B-I-N-O.
2: Great. We'll uh, continue with Rich Rubino. Look at your weather coming up after the break, too. This is Overnight America, KMOX.
0: Cardinals spring training is underway in Jupiter, Florida. And KMOX's Mike Claiborne is covering it all. Hear his daily reports, mornings and afternoons. And on Cardinals Open Live, sponsored in part by TRU's Homes. I'm your voice of the St. Louis Cardinals. KMOX. Rich
2: Rabino is the author of American Politics on the Rocks, BlitterGeek.com. You can also find him on social media. Rich, thanks again for coming on this Monday night.
3: Oh, we're glad to do it.
2: We've seen all kinds of different fighting within the parties when it comes to the person in power. In this case, as uh, mentioned before, Donald Trump still has a lot of power in the Republican Party yes, as a he former does. president, still looked at as uh, the leader of the party in many ways. And we look at the relationship between presidents. And the leadership in their own party. And you could even look at, you know, Joe Biden with the leadership of his own party. But if you want to go to Donald Trump and look at the leadership in his own party, they all kind of handle things in a different way. Different uh, political dramas, I guess, go down.
3: Yeah, oh, absolutely. You know, it's interesting because um, most presidents, I think, tend to view when they come into power that their party is just basically going to say, you know, I'm reporting for duty. And um, essentially (laughs) try to garner, try to carry out the legislative agenda of that president, there was an interesting confrontation uh, back in 1965. So, when Lyndon Johnson was president. Mike Mansfield, Mike Mansfield was the Senate uh, Majority Leader, Senator from Montana, very instrumental in um, in shepherding many of Johnson's great society legislation, civil rights legislation, Medicare. But when it came to Vietnam. They really had a um, there was a chasm between the two. Mansfield actually was one of the first opponents of Vietnam War. In 1962, John F. Kennedy sent him over there. And Mansfield came back and told Kennedy that he thought it was an unwinnable war and the U.S. should get out. Um, and John F. Kennedy did not, agree, did not agree with him, sent more advisors in. By 1965, you know, Johnson said, you know, essentially, you're my majority leader. And Mansfield looks at him and says, no, I'm the people's majority leader. I don't work for you, Mr. President. Um, mm-hmm. so there always is kind of that inherent tension. Sometimes it's ideological. You know, go back to the times of Theodore Roosevelt was president, and he was relatively progressive on many things, whereas Speaker Joe Cannon, who was in there from 1903 to 1911 from Illinois, was extremely conservative. Um, Theodore Roosevelt basically tread lightly on him. He didn't want to kind of upset him because he knew that he was somebody who was really a tribune of the conservative bloodline of the party. When William Howard Taft came in as a Republican, Roosevelt gave him that same advice, and what, um, what William Howard Taft did is he, want, he didn't want to deal with, with, with canon. Remember, William Howard Taft, we think of him as a conservative today. But he actually came in as quite a progressive. That's why Theodore Roosevelt supported him over his own vice president, Charles Fairbanks, um, and in that And when he became president, he actually was somewhat progressive in terms of, for example, declaring national monuments. But when he came in, he talked to John sherman John Sherman was the incoming vice president, and he said, "I want you to go in, and I want you to deal with um, with Speaker cannon and um, Sherman says no, he says you know i 'm vice president and i 'm not acting as a messenger." And I, that being a messenger is not part of my duty, so as a result, Taft ends up calling him himself, and they'll end up having somewhat of a cordial relationship. But another example would be in Bill, in Bill Clinton's um, first term. You know, he had some issues because Bill Clinton came in as a new Democrat. So it a new Democrat, somewhat more moderate, more conservative than where the party had been. But then in the Democratic Party in the House of Representatives, you had Dick Gephardt from Missouri, and you had Dave, David Bonnier and they were the number two were number three men in the Democratic Party, respectively. So when Bill Clinton won NAFTA, um, the, opposition to the, the opposition to NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement, was not so much in the Republican Party as in the Democratic Party. Speaker Foley up- supported Clinton on NAFTA. George Mitchell in the, the Senate side, the Senate Majority Leader, supported him. But the opposition was led by Dick Gephardt and David Bonnier against their own president, And so as a result, uh, Bill Richardson, the congressman from Nebraska, from uh, New Mexico, ended up taking over kind of the role as Bill Clinton's whip versus the actual whip of the House, which was David Bonnier, who was whipping against his own president. And then later in, you know, in 1997, when Bill Clinton signed the Balanced Budget Act, there was some opposition, and part of the opposition was led, again, by Dick Gephardt. He was leading the opposition to the left of the wing of the Democratic Party against his own president. So a lot of people forget sometimes That the the Senate senators are essentially, you know, they're independent entrepreneurs, and sometimes their their Hmm. position is can be at odds with the actual position of the president um, of their own party. Another example would be Tom Foley when he was Speaker of the House. Tom Foley was always he represented Spokane, the Spokane, uh, Washington, and um, kind of its environs. And that was a very um, gun-friendly congressional district. So he was always somebody who was opposed to many measures involving gun control. So he would sometimes oppose his own party and his own presidents when it came to uh, gun control. All
2: right, I have a uh, trivia question for you. This might be the hardest political trivia question I've ever asked you. I don't know if you'll get this one. So we know that Arnold Schwarzenegger was the governor of California for a certain amount of time, actually a pretty uh, long stretch of time in California. How do you spell Schwarzenegger?
3: Oh gosh! This is, I was just spelling <laughs> that yesterday. That's what's so funny. I I put I wrote something up and then I was trying to uh, spell it and it was coming up and it, well, it wasn't even. This is really funny. This is really funny that you brought this up because um, his name is in my next book and I put and I had I, was, I tried to go to the spell check and I got nothing that was even similar to it. So eventually I had to go to Wikipedia, but I would guess S C H That's all I got. Yeah.
2: <laughs> S-C-H-W-A-R-Z-E-N-E-G-G-E-R. Schwarzenegger. Not bad. That's wow. a hard one. And that's, as a politician, an interesting uh, politician, considering he served as long as he did, uh, as oh, a Republican in California.
3: Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Well, he came in. It's interesting because, again, history is repeating itself because he came in back in 2003 because there was the recall effort against the incumbent governor, who became very unpopular, uh, Gray Davis. Some people said that he was hiding a surplus. You had Bill Clinton go in there campaigning, saying, don't do this recall. You had like 146 people landing up in that um, in that recall effort. You had everyone from Lieutenant Governor Cruz Bustamante to Peter Ubaroth, the former baseball commissioner, to Gary Coleman. Um, there were porn <laughs> yeah, stars. Right. There was just about everyone was Gary in this Coleman. race. Gary Coleman, yes, he was one of the people who got on the ballot for the recall. And, um, you know, it's just it's one of the most fascinating, um, you know, lessons in political history because the ballot access was so liberal. So just about everybody that had some sort of a way to promote themselves or promote their business landed up getting into that race. And Arnold Schwarzenegger, of course, lands up winning. And now we're having a very similar situation with Gavin Newsom. Um, yeah. Gavin Newsom, there is a recall effort against Gavin Newsom. And the, as the, the the laws for getting signatures to recall an incumbent uh, an incumbent executive officer are very liberal, so there's a very strong possibility that he actually could uh, that there. Well, I think it's probably it's probably not as strong that he actually could be recalled, but there actually could be a recall measure um, on the ballot against him. In which case, you'd essentially have a Republican, and then you know potentially what's interesting about the recall process is if he's recalled. Then you would need to have kind of another. You need to have an another. You have it's very complicated. But you have an alternative. People get to then vote for the alternative. So the question is, do the Democrats stick with? Uh, do they stick with uh, not great David with uh, Gavin Newsom, or do they also say, as an insurance policy, vote for this person in case Gavin Newsom does not win? Because that's what they did in two thousand and three. They had Cruz Bustamante, the incumbent California lieutenant governor. Um, as kind of the alternative, say, essentially, if Gray Davis gets recalled, we want this guy to succeed him instead. It's a very fascinating process.
2: Yeah, and Los Angeles Times last report had 1.2 million validated signatures (laughs) on a recall effort. That's a lot of people in California saying they want to recall Gavin Newsom. Uh, And you also have the governor of New York right now not looking too good with uh, Andrew (laughs) Cuomo because of all of the other scandals surrounding him. You have these... uh, the sexual scandals with multiple women coming forward. You have the nursing home angle to it all. He doesn't want to step down, fighting back on some of these. So not looking too good for the two governors with California and New York right now.
3: No, and the ironic thing was how popular they were at the beginning of the year, and they were both folks that were considered possible presidential candidates in 2024. Gavin Newsom has had pretty much a congenital ambition um, to become president. Someone who was mayor of San Francisco, he was lieutenant governor under Jerry Brown, Um, He was very popular his first year or two in office. Same thing with Andrew Cuomo. Andrew Cuomo, the thought was, was going to run for a third term. There was thought, you know, at the beginning of the year that why doesn't Joe Biden just choose him as his running mate, even though he's from New York, even though he'd give that New York liberal uh, persona on the ticket, even though he's not a female and Joe Biden had promised to be a female. He was so popular and people thought he was so competent that he needs to put a, he needs to forgo that and still put him on the ticket. Now you have a scenario where the entire Democratic delegation um, in the New York Senate, I mean, in the New York uh, House of Representatives, the New York Senate, um, I'm sorry, in the House of Representatives and then the uh, both, Senator Schumer and Chris Kirsten Gillibrand are saying, you know, you have to resign. But, of course, Andrew Cuomo is saying he does not have to, he does not want to resign. And if you look at the polls, it's actually a majority of the population actually does not necessarily say he should resign, even though certainly the majority of the uh, politicians do.
2: I had to Google search that, congenital ambition. What a phrase. Now, that sounds like a Schwarzenegger movie out of the 90s. Did something come up? (laughs) Yeah, there's a couple of times that has been used. It's it's a great podcast name too. I would try to coin that as fast as I can if for uh, maybe another book after your one that you're working on right now. Wow, wow. ambition.
3: It, it uh, came out what a, Freudian. Uh, it came out Freudian, I guess. But
2: yeah, see, I, I like that term. All right, so it's uh, unique. Is the first time I've heard those two words put together, and it just works somehow. It sounds like a movie title. I, one other well. thing I wanted to ask you about is what we're seeing on a couple of different fronts we had the United States and China have their delegates meet in Alaska for a couple of days um, not super friendly but at least they talked the southern border we're still having issues with that uh, between the two carryover policies and then the policies that change between the Trump and Biden administrations looks like a little bit more friendly for crossing the border mm-hmm. right about now at least that's the that's the uh, message that got to the people that wanted to come to the country maybe by means of not legal immigration so you see an influx of people Coming in, and we're seeing that at our borders right now. There are a lot of people that are being detained, a lot of children, things like that. So you see these different policies that are going on: tariffs and immigration, things like that. I'm just kind of curious how you think the two parties usually handle in what we're seeing now between, you know, pretty stark contrast between the Trump and Biden administrations on how they're handled.
3: Oh, it's interesting because basically the Republican Party on immigration and on um, and on and on free trade has been generally the party they 're certainly the party of they 've been the party of free trade, basically going all the way from Eisenhower to George W. Bush. They were also the party generally speaking of, um, curtail of supporting sometimes increased immigration you know Ronald Reagan signed an act that wouldn that 't legalize the three million immigrants who were already in America. You should go back to 1980. George H.W. Bush and Ronald Reagan were debating uh, for the Republican presidential nomination and basically both saying that we need to open up, uh, that, that, we need, that we need more, that we need more um, immigrants to come from Mexico. Um, and in 1976, Ronald Reagan, when he was, when he de- 1979 rather, when he declared he was going to run for president, in that declaration, he said essentially that there needs to be a free trade zone between Canada, Mexico, and America. Of course, that event essentially became, um, became NAFTA. But it didn't always used to be that way, because prior to that, the Republican Party, basically from Abraham Lincoln through Herbert Hoover, were economic nationalists. Um, You know, go back to Benjamin Harrison, ran for president in part in 1888, and he wanted a protective tariff. Grover Cleveland, the Democrat, was opposed to the idea of a protective tariff. William McKinley in 1896 runs on runs on essentially economic nationalism. 1900, he runs for pre- he runs for re-election. He said he gave a full dinner pail, I meaning he got a, he basically took credit for what he thought was a sound economy. He took credit for the fact that he that he supported um, that he supported curtailing uh, that he supported curtailing free trade. He actually authored the McKinley Tariff, which was signed by when he was in the House of Representatives when he was chairman of the Ways and Means Committee from Ohio, which was signed by then President Benjamin Harrison. Fast forward to Warren G. Harding. Warren G. Harding, when he gets in there, he signs the he signs the Emergency um, Immigration Act of eighteen of nineteen twenty one. Then nineteen twenty three, signs another tariff act, and then um, Calvin Coolidge comes in and he signs the Immigration Act of nineteen twenty four, which curtailed which curtailed legal immigration, which is essentially repealed by President Lyndon B. Johnson in nineteen sixty four. Um, George W. Bush, when he was running when he was running for um, president, when he was running for when he was running for president, 2000, 2004, talked about how essentially um, he used to say that he used to say that um, that family that family values does not does not stop at the at borders edge. In 2005, he talked about an Ill, a pathway to earn legalization. This was a Republican president who was supporting this. He also was basically an exponent, a supporter of free trade, and he talks about our free trade, how we need to open up more markets. The same thing Reagan supported, Ford supported, Nixon supported. Donald Trump comes in. He goes back to the future, to the status quo ante, and brings the Republican Party back to where they were under Coolidge, Hoover, and Warren G. Harding, McKinley, Benjamin McKinley, Benjamin Harrison, and certainly um, Ulysses S. Grant, basically every Republican president, Rutherford B. Hayes as well, James Garfield as well, Chester A. Arthur as well, and he brings the party back to that, and when it comes to immigration, he brings it back to essentially where the party was under Calvin Coolidge, so It's just a different version of conservativism, but it's the conservativism of Calvin Coolidge, certainly. And he's really, you know, people look at who who in history does he probably most resemble. And I say ideologically, certainly Harding and Coolidge would certainly fit the bill there.
2: Well, if people wanted, again, to find you on social media and some of the things you're doing, where can they look?
3: Yep, just go to my Facebook, Rich, last name Rubino, R-U-B-I-N-O. Go to uh, Twitter at Rich Rubino, P-O-L, or just simply go to... um, or just simply go to uh, www.politigeek.com.
2: Politageek.com. Geek,
3: Polita-geek, Correct. Correct. Yeah.
2: And uh, American Politics on the Rocks, your current book, which people can look up now. Rich Rabino, thank you again for coming on to Overnight America.
3: Much obliged.
2: And he joins us on the Bomberito Automotive Group guest line. This is Overnight America, KMOX.
0: Overnight America with Ryan Recker is sponsored by... Michael's Flooring. The flooring experts. Michaelsflooringoutlet.com. On the voice of St. Louis, KMOX.
2: You know, this is one of my favorite Bob Costas moments. And happy birthday to the KMOX legend, the sports legend, really, the Hall of Famer, Bob Costas, turning 69 today. Same day as William Shatner turning 90. But really, we should give the love to KMOX alumni, Bob Costas, who we greatly admire here and so many great memories of KMOX. He has such a great love for this radio station, and we know it because he spends so much time coming back and doing things with us all through his prime years through uh, NBC Sports and everything he was doing. Then he always came back to KMOX, always did stuff with us here. And it was such a fantastic thing to see. And I got to say. One of the moments from the KMOX archives that I always think about when I think about Bob Costas is when he was giving a tribute to Robert Highland and he was talking about the moment he asked for some time off. I just thought this was one of the greatest moments. I don't know why. I always go back to this. And this is included, this story, this moment is included. As part of the Robert Highland radio documentary I put together, which you can find in the podcast section if you go to the Overnight America podcast or if you just go to KMOX.com. Maybe I'll repost a link to it here just so it's uh, top of mind. But this is where he is given a story about what it was like to talk to Robert Highland.
1: He calls me on a Sunday at about six o'clock. He says the blues are on the radio tonight from Quebec. And we need you to do the between-periods show. Between the first and second and second and third periods. This was the first I had heard of this. I said, Mr. Highland, I have four tickets to see the Rolling Stones tonight at the Fox Theater. Which, of course, went over big with him. That was a reference he appreciated. <laughs> I said, I got these four tickets. I had to go to a lot of trouble. I got friends in from out of town. I'll do anything for you. I've proven that. I've worked morning, noon, and night. I've worked without a day off. But please, please get somebody else to do the between periods, and I'll make it up to you in the future. And his actual answer was, well, all right. But in the future, don't make any more of these social engagements. (laughs) I I have to admit I was unreasonable, and I... I I had to
2: mend my way. Oh, I think this is just great. Uh, There was one other moment. I think I have time to play this. It's only about 30 seconds long. But uh, there was a moment where KMOX was hooking up with other countries, and they were doing a broadcast with Japan. But with the time difference, it was in the middle of the night. We're talking like early 1990s, Bob Hardy hooking up and talking to Japan. And then in walks of Bob Costas out of nowhere. Thank you from all of us here at KMOX in St. Louis. And we will do the bridge again, I promise you.
1: Mary, thanks for being with us. Thank you. Night. And, uh, Kevin, Thank for you. all your help, too.
2: Thank you very much. And, Bob, I wish you could have gotten here earlier.
1: Just happened to be passing by and couldn't resist. always well, we see that light out of the window, don't you? What was I doing driving around downtown at nearly I, 1 o'clock in the morning? You explain that to a Japanese wife. That's not
2: my problem. <laughs> well, that's the thing. Bob Costas just happened to be downtown and just happened to be listening to KMOX on a random night where he just happened to be out. And he said, you know, I'm just going to stop by the studio and just be part of this simulcast with Japan. Isn't that cool? (laughs) I thought that was so neat. All right. Happy birthday to KMOX legend, Bob Costas. Uh, Coming up, we're going to talk some baseball in Cuba. Right after the break, this is Overnight America KMOX